turn your Bibles with me to the first letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 1, and we are going to be looking at verses 8 through 11, as Paul now addresses to the Ephesians and to Timothy what I believe is the error that these teachers of the law are committing. I find it interesting that If you remember back in Acts chapter 20, Paul, as he's departing from the Ephesian church there, he warns the elders that some from among their own number, some of those actual elders would stray from the faith and turn out to be wolves themselves. And now that Timothy's dealing with what he's dealing in Ephesus, not much, a couple years after that, you wonder if Paul's words are now coming true, his prediction. But let's look at verses 8 through 11 here of 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read that for us, but before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. And so may we come before it trembling and joyful, expecting him to do great things by his word. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this. That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Beloved of God, all of scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. So let's ask the Lord now together to bless his word to us that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we humbly acknowledge before you that heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool. And so there is no house we can build for you There is no place for you to rest, for all these things your hand has made, and so all these things came to be. And yet we also know, Lord, that you dwell with those who are humble and contrite in spirit, with those who tremble at your word. And so we pray that you would make us such a people tonight. Dwell with us and deepen our fellowship with you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the name John Newton, and most of you are probably familiar with that name because he wrote that beloved hymn that the church has sang throughout the ages, one that we sing often at Sovereign Grace, Amazing Grace. But what you may not know is that John Newton is also remembered in history for his abundant correspondence with a variety of people, giving them sage pastoral counsel as he wrote them. 
And so I highly commend to you his letters if you've never read them before. But with one of his correspondence, and for the life of me, I could not find the letter. So you can come badger me about that afterwards if you'd like. But in one of his letters, here's what he says. He says, ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most of our religious mistakes. Misunderstanding or ignorance of the nature and design of God's law is the source of so many mistakes that we make in our Christian lives. And I think that's such a helpful quotation to focus on as we turn to what Paul is talking about in verses 8 through 11. And I think your experience, if it's anything like mine in the Christian life, resonates with what Newton is saying here. I can look at my life as a Christian, as short as that may be compared to yours, to some of you in this room. I've looked at other people's lives, both as I was in college and since I've been a pastor. And I can see that so many problems in the Christian life arise from a misunderstanding of our relationship to God's law. Now, at the outset, let me explain to you what I mean by God's law. Because when we hear that phrase, and in Paul's epistles in the New Testament, he uses that term law in a variety of ways, doesn't he? Well, law, as we're going to talk about it tonight, and as Paul is using it here, is talking about the moral law found in the Mosaic Covenant. The law that God has written on the hearts of all of his image bearers. The law that Adam knew in the garden but violated, the law that was then codified on the tablets by God at Mount Sinai, and the law that Jesus then expounded on in his ministry. It's the moral law. And I call it the moral law of the Mosaic Covenant because the church has long believed that there are three parts or three types of law found in the Mosaic Covenant. There's the judicial laws, And those are the laws that would govern the political life of Israel as they were a theocracy under God's command. Those have been fulfilled in Jesus and done away with. Why? Because he is the true Israel. And then you have the ceremonial laws that were given to Israel. These were ceremonies that they were to carry out that were to point them to the coming work and ministry of the Messiah. The sacrifices, the festivals, the feasts. And all of these have been fulfilled in Jesus. And so those are gone and done away with. And then we have, thirdly, the moral law. And Jesus, yes, fulfilled that as well for us. But that's not gone and done away with. And we should be thankful for that because that law springs forth from God's divine nature. It reflects his divine nature. And so since he doesn't change, the moral law doesn't change either. But that's the law that we're going to be talking about tonight. And the two typical errors that you find throughout church history, and I'm sure you've seen in your own life, are the two extremes of, on the one hand, antinomianism, which is a big word, and the kids are like, what does that mean? Really simple, anti-nomos, against the law. This is the belief that because Jesus fulfilled the law in our place, and doesn't Paul say, we're no longer under law, but we're under grace, then the law has no place in our lives. We're not under it in any sense of the word as Christians. That's an error to say that the law has nothing to do with you as a Christian. The other error that we are prone to give way to 
is the legalist error. And the legalist error is this lie that even as one who is in Christ, you are still under the law as a covenant of works. And so you're obligated to obey it perfectly and be justified before God based on your own works. And so the legalist believes that when you believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you and empowers you to obey the law perfectly so that you fulfill the covenant of works by your law keeping. And brothers and sisters, that is another error. I think that's the error that Paul is dealing with here in his letter to Timothy and the Ephesian church. And I'll prove that to you tonight, I hope quite decisively. But these are the errors that we're prone to. And if you pay attention to your own walk with the Lord and your relationship with the law, don't you find that you sometimes ping pong back and forth between the two extremes? All right, well, I don't seem to be able to keep the law and Jesus kept it anyway, so now I'll just get it out of my life and I'm not thinking about it much. And oh, no, no, I've got to keep the law because it's like a covenant of works. And so we ping pong back and forth. And so Paul's concern for the church for the Ephesians, for Timothy, God's concern for us tonight, brothers and sisters, which is why he's preserved his word and now it's being preached to us, is that we would know how to lawfully use the law. How to use the law in the way that God intended it to be used. To think rightly about our relationship to the law. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight as we look at these four verses And as we look at how we're to use the law lawfully, I want us to look at that under three headings to serve as a way to walk through our text. First of all, in verse 8, we're going to look at the good law. We're going to see that Paul says the law is good. And he also says that there's a way to use the law lawfully. And so we'll look at that in the first point in verse 8. Second of all, we're going to look at the bad use of the law or the abuse of the law in verses 9 and 10. Paul says, even though the law is good in and of itself, that doesn't mean that every use of the law is good. There's an unlawful way to use the law, and we want to be warned against that. Paul wants the Ephesians to be aware of that. And so we'll be made aware of that tonight as well. And then thirdly, finally, Paul draws our attention in verse 11 to the blessed God. He ends on this exclamation point of, The blessed God who blesses us in his son. And unless we see God as blessed in and of himself, I don't think we'll rightly understand what a blessing his law is to us. And so we're going to look at each one of these points. And brothers and sisters, my prayer is that the Lord would use his word tonight to cause us to rejoice and love his law more than when we walked through those doors. So may his spirit cause his word to be used to that end having said that let's look first then at the good law in verse 8 now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully so paul begins by talking about the law because he's going into the error that is being espoused by those we saw in verses 6 and 7 of 1 Timothy 1, who are setting themselves up to be teachers of the law. And so Paul says, well, let's talk about this, because I think part of what Paul's dealing with is that false teachers are saying, 
hey, by Paul's gospel that he's preaching to you, he's saying that the law has no place in your life anymore. He's saying that the law is a bad thing. And so it ought to have no place in your Christian life. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not what I teach. The law is good. We all know that the law is good. And Paul has said that in other places. He's not against the law. Think about what he says in Romans chapter 7, in verse 12. He says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, why does Paul say that? Why does he say the law is holy and righteous and good? He says that because he knows from whom the law comes. The law comes from the God who is holy and righteous and good, who is goodness itself. And so, therefore, if this law comes from him, which it does, then the law itself must be good. And so Paul is fully convinced, and he just takes it for granted. All believers believe the law is good because it reflects the goodness and the character of God. Now, Having said that the law is good, Paul then goes on to say that they need to know how to use the law lawfully. Because just because the law is good in and of itself doesn't mean that every use of the law is good. And so he wants to make sure that we understand the lawful way to use the law. All right, so here's the question then. How does one lawfully use the law? How do you rightly use the law as God intended it to be used. And brothers and sisters, this is where we benefit so much from our heritage as Protestants and thank God for how our forefathers in the faith thought through so meticulously with a practical end in mind for how to rightly think about God's moral law in the Mosaic covenant, in the Mosaic law. And here's how they thought about it. They thought about it as having three uses. There's three uses of the law. And the first two came from Luther. He codified those very clearly and sort of not as clearly. He talked about the third use of the law. Well, Melanchthon then formulated it very clearly, his protege. And he said, well, here are the clear three uses of the law. Calvin, coming after Melanchthon, liked them so much, he said, We'll adopt those as well. We like that. Yes, we think those are three good uses of the law. We think that's biblical. And so now this comes down to us. So we're thankful for this. So what are the three uses of the law? First of all, and I'll just tell you the first and the second, depending on which reformer you read or study, they put the first two in different orders. So if you heard this in a different order, that's fine. One's not right or wrong. The first use of the law is the civil use of the law. And this is the way that the Lord uses his law, and it ought to be used to restrain evil in the hearts of men at the level of a government. And so this applies, this use of the law, to both believers and unbelievers. You don't become a Christian and then say, I'm not under the law anymore, so now I don't have to not murder. I'm free to murder, right? That's ridiculous. Some of you are laughing at that that very prospect, exactly. And unbelievers... Though they're not in Christ, they're not excused from just behaving however they want. And so the first legitimate use of the law is that the government wields it. Paul says in Romans 13, you ought to fear the government. It bears the sword for good reason. And so 
there's been much consensus amongst the reformers that the commandments five through nine, because how do you enforce the 10th commandment, coveting? I don't know how you do that at a government level. should be upheld by the government. And believers and unbelievers are beholden to submit to the law in that way. So that's the first use of the law. It pertains to both believers and unbelievers. Second use of the law is the pedagogical use of the law. And this is the use of the law for unbelievers. It's to show them you stand before God in relationship to him under a covenant of works. That's been the case for every human being ever since Adam. Adam was in a covenant of works with God. He knew what God wanted him to do. He had the power to do it and failed. And what was promised in the covenant of works? If you obey perfectly, eternal life. And if you disobey, death. Well, we know what happens. Adam doesn't obey, death. And all of us are conceived under that covenant of works, under the condemnation and wrath of God. And it's called pedagogical because it's meant to lead us to Christ, to show us our need for Christ. But this use is for unbelievers. They are under the law as a covenant of works, and it's meant to cause them to despair of any attempt to justify themselves before God by their own works. So you have the civil use, first use, second of all, the pedagogical use, and then thirdly, the third use of the law is for believers. It's meant to be a guide for us. It's meant to rule over us, and the reformers called this the normative use of the law. This is the norm for believers. This leads us and guides us. I love what Turton said. Turton said, the law, according to its second use, leads us to Christ. It shows us that how we are to despair of justifying ourselves before God by our own works. It leads us to Christ. And then Christ leads us back to the law in this third sense of the term, that we are under the law as a rule for our lives, not under a covenant of works, as in the first use, but under a covenant of of grace. Why? Because who has fulfilled the covenant of works for all the elect? The Lord Jesus Christ. He took the curse upon us that we deserve for our sin, the wrath and condemnation that is ours under the law and the covenant of works. He paid that penalty in full on the cross and he fulfilled all righteousness. He perfectly kept all of the stipulations of the covenant of works in our place. So that we don't relate to God that way anymore. Now it's through Christ in a covenant of grace. And so now the law, we love it. Because out of love, not primarily fear, as in the second use of the law, but primarily out of love, because God has shown his love to us in his son and poured out the love of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We now want to respond in love. And the law tells us how to do that. And shows us how we fall short in that. But it doesn't come to condemn. It comes to convict. It comes to instruct. It comes to lead. And so do you see how this protects us from the extremes, the error that we're so prone to of either the antinomian saying the law is not a rule in our lives on the one hand, or the legalist to say we're still under the law as a covenant of works. And so this is so glorious and beneficial and may we be thankful for the heritage 
that is ours. Now, this isn't to say that we can perfectly obey the law. That's not what you're to walk away with this thinking. And I love how the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 114 deals with this. It asks the question, but can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? And here's the answer. No, but even the holiest men, while in this life, have only small beginnings of this obedience. Yet so, that with a sincere resolution, they begin to live not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Do you hear what the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism are saying? They're saying, listen, those who reach the very heights of sanctification in this life from a human perspective have only but made baby steps, the smallest beginnings in sanctification. And yet, from the very time that they were regenerate and saved, it was their intention because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts to not just obey some of the the law, but all of it out of love and thanks and gratitude to God. But none of us does this perfectly, but we do it truly and out of love. That's why Paul, I think, says so clearly in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what he's looking for, and that's what the Spirit does in us. And so this is what Paul means when he's talking about the goodness of the law and how we are to use the law lawfully. The law has those three proper uses. Now, Here's the issue. The issue is that the teachers of the law are not using the law lawfully. They're not. And so then the question becomes, okay, well, how does one use the law unlawfully, specifically in the case of the Ephesians? And Paul answers that question in verses 9 and 10. So let's look then at our second point, the bad use of the law. Here's how the law gets abused or used unlawfully. Look at verses 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying that these teachers of the law, verse 7, those who are desiring to be teachers of the law, he's saying that the way that they're unlawfully using the law is they're trying to take the second use of the law, the pedagogical use, and put believers under that. These teachers are saying, listen, yes, you're under the law, but you're under it as a covenant of works. They're making the legalist error here. Now, you may wonder, why would they do that? How would that benefit them? Well, brothers and sisters, if you've ever been under the misconception as a believer that you're under the law as a covenant of works, you know how completely and utterly terrifying that is. How unstable you are in your relationship with God. Because you don't know how the day is going to go. You know you're going to sin at some point. And what does that do in your relationship with him? If your standing before God is dependent upon your law keeping. 
How can you ever know that his love for you is secure? And so what happens is, I think this is a power move on the part of wicked men. Because now these poor Christians in Ephesus are desperate and heavy laden. And so now they come and like, well, what are we supposed to do? And then so what do the teachers of the law do? They add to the law of God. Just like the Pharisees did. The Pharisees added to the law. The Judaizers do the exact same thing. They add to the law of God. And it gives them all the power because you're terrorized by the law. And that's what I think the error that that is being committed here. That's why Paul says in verse 9 that the law is not laid down for the just, but for who? For those who break the law. For those who are unjust. Now you may think to yourself, well then the law is laid down for everybody because everybody breaks the law. Well that's true brothers and sisters because Paul says that in places in the book of Romans. But that is not the point that Paul is making here. The point that Paul is making here is this second use of the law is not applicable to believers, to those who have had the covenant of works fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ in their place, because they are under the law as a rule and a guide, a lead for their lives, but they're not under it in a condemning way like they once were when they were unbelievers. And so Paul says these teachers are using the law unlawfully. And we know that that's what Paul's doing because then did you notice that he gives a summary statement here of the Ten Commandments in verses 9 and 10? Did you catch that? I know it's a little bit harder to maybe catch the first four commandments, but they're all here with the exception of the tenth, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But look again with me at verse 9. Paul says that the law is for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. So you got four descriptions here of who the law is for. And I think each one of these is touching on the first four commandments. First commandment, they don't worship God alone. And so they're what? They're ungodly. Second commandment, they don't worship God as he's commanded. They're sinners. Third commandment, they don't revere God's name. And so they're unholy. And then fourthly, They are profane because they break the fourth commandment. They do not honor the Sabbath. So there's the whole first table of the Ten Commandments. What's the summary? They don't love God. They don't love him. And here's the thing. Because they don't love God, they also don't love their neighbor. And so then Paul goes on to list the rest of the commandments. Look again at verse 9. He says what? He says that the law is laid down for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Children, I'm sure some of you here this evening, you struggle to honor your father and mother. It's a very important commandment because that it will go well with you in the land. It's the first commandment with a promise. And so sometimes I bet in your heart, you seethe against them and the authority that they wield in your lives. But here's the thing. Paul is saying it's not just a matter of those who dishonor their parents with their words or in their hearts. These are folks who actually raise their hands against their parents. This is high-handed sin. This is a high-handed violation of the fifth commandment. They're beating on their parents. Paul then goes on to mention the sixth commandment when he says that the law is laid down for, at the very end of verse 9, murderers. You shall not murder. And that yet there are people who have no compunction 
in taking away the lives of other image bearers of God. So there's the sixth commandment. Look at verse 10 with me, and we'll see the rest of the commandments here. He says that the laws lay down for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. So what's the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery, and it includes every sexual sin in there. Whether you're married or unmarried, you are to be pure in your relations with those around you. And so Paul says, again, it's high-handed. It's, it's homosexuality. So there's the seventh commandment. He also goes on and mentions the eighth commandment. He says, the laws laid down for who? Enslavers. Enslavers. Think kidnappers. Think slave traders. Think those who are engaged in human trafficking. Because what is the eighth commandment? You shall not steal. And what's the most precious thing you can steal from somebody else? (laughs) Their freedom. Possession of their own person. They don't belong to you. They belong to God. And so to steal people, it's high-handed. It's heinous. Paul then goes on to point out the ninth commandment and the violation of it when he says that the law is given for liars and perjurers. What's the ninth commandment? You shall not bear false witness. These people bear false witness in court, in legal situations, in all of their lives. They mimic their father, the father of lies, Satan himself. If they're talking, they're lying. And usually, if they're conscious, they're lying because they spend a good deal of their time lying to themselves long before they ever lie to others. Now, you may say, well, the 10th commandment missing is quite the omission, isn't it? That's an interesting omission. But not really, brothers and sisters, if you stop and think about it, because the 10th commandment is implied in all of the other commandments being listed. Because you're not violating any of these commandments unless you're coveting. And so it's implied there, which is why I think Paul doesn't list it. And yet, if there's anything you feel like is missing, listen to how Paul sums it all up at the very end of verse 10. And whatever else is contrary to sound or hygienic or healthy doctrine. So now he's just including everything else, every sin. And what he's saying is the law is given and intended in that second use, that pedagogical use, as a covenant of works for unbelievers. It's not meant for you who are just in the Lord Jesus Christ. That second use of the law. Yes, the law is useful for you in that third way, as a rule for life, but you should not allow anyone to put you under the bondage again of being under the law as a covenant of works. That's why the reformers called this Christian liberty. Now, we think Christian liberty, we hear that today, and we think, well, that has to do with people trying to tell us that we can or can't do something that the law of God doesn't speak about. And that's true. But primarily when the reformers were talking about Christian liberty, it's that we're freed from that bondage to the law as a covenant of works. And so Paul says, don't you put yourself under that bondage again. Don't you let anybody else put you under that bondage again. Because Christ has freed you. Christ was born under the law and became the curse for you so that there is no curse left for you. In all the penalties of that covenant, all the obligations of that covenant, it's fulfilled in Christ. And so don't submit yourself to this bondage. Now, by way of application, 
I just want to give a little bit of a warning here. It's a warning that I feel is necessary. I saw this for sure when I was in college at a Bible college where there were a bunch of differing opinions about the law of God and how are we to interpret this passage and what about that passage. And the tendency that I saw amongst my fellow classmates is in that maelstrom of opinions and differing approaches to texts, they would get overwhelmed and they'd say, all right, I'm done with that. And they would just get rid of the law of God. They'd live as if they were a law unto themselves because they were either confused and there were some shady characters as well. And there are always shady characters who want to play fast and loose with God's law. And they want to teach false things because it gives them a platform to stand up on. And so here's my warning to you, brothers and sisters. When you find yourself in that situation, either seeing how false teachers are mishandling the word of God or overwhelmed with a variety of interpretive options, don't just jettison the faith. Don't just get rid of the law. Don't give in to that temptation that we're all prone to. That's the antinomian temptation, isn't it? All right, I'm just going to get rid of the law then. Because I don't really know how I'm supposed to think about it. Instead, find good teachers. Hopefully, come to your pastors and ask us about those things. And ask the Lord to lead you and guide you into the truth. Because he will honor that, brothers and sisters. But don't make the error of throwing out the baby with the bathwater just because you see the good law of God abused in some way, shape, or form. And then the last encouragement that I have for you is to rightly understand those uses of the law. Think rightly about the law of God and understand rightly your relationship to it so that that law doesn't get used against you to your harm and in an attempt by those false teachers to eclipse the glory of God. Learn to use the law lawfully. So we've seen that the law is good, but it can be used for bad And lastly, and so importantly in my mind, Paul then directs our attention in verse 11 to the blessed God. So let's look there. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now notice first in verse 11 what Paul says here. He says, listen, everything I just said about the law and everything I say about the law is in perfect accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Again, one of the charges that the false teachers are likely bringing against Paul is that in his system, law and gospel are enemies. And so they can't coexist together. And I love what Spurgeon said when he was asked a similar question. He was asked by someone, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And Spurgeon, being the smart aleck and clever as he is, quick on his feet with his words, he said, I don't. I don't reconcile friends. And what his point is, is, listen, I don't have to reconcile divine uh, sovereignty and human responsibility because even though I don't understand how they go together, they're not opposed to each other because the scriptures say that they're not opposed to each other. And so Paul's saying the same thing. I don't reconcile them because they're not enemies. They're not opposed to each other. And what does Paul mean by that? What he's saying is, he's saying, listen, here's the thing about the law. I uphold the law because here's the reality. I don't say get rid of it in your lives. I say that once you are convicted and see that you cannot fulfill the requirements of the covenant of works, you despair of yourself, look to Christ, then Christ sends the Holy Spirit and he does empower you 
to walk in the ways of the law. Not perfectly, but genuinely, truly, progressively. And so Paul says, I don't bang these up against each other and say that they're enemies. No, they're in accord. They sweetly comply with one another, is what the Westminster divines had to say about that. And Paul says elsewhere in Romans 3.31, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And that's what he's saying here. But note also who Paul says is the source of this glorious gospel. And who is the source of the law? Who's the source? It's the blessed God. Brothers and sisters, this is so important. Do you think of God, your heavenly father, who has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reconcile you to himself, to free you from the condemnation of the law so that you might be able to walk in accord with the law as you're empowered by the spirit in a covenant of grace with him? Do you understand that he is blessed in and of himself? We sing it every Sunday morning. Praise God from whom All blessings flow. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. You understand that God needs nothing from you. He's self-sufficient. He's blessed in and of himself. And out of the fullness of that blessing, every blessing then comes to you. The chief blessing being the blessing of his only begotten Son. Come to reconcile you to God. And yet I fear, brothers and sisters, and I know this lurks in my own heart, that we wrongly view God as this miser who's just demanding, I need this glory from you. So I demand it, and I take note of every jot and tittle, every violation of the law that you commit. He's Ebenezer Scrooge in the sky, keeping tabs on all the ways that you violate the laws of God, looking down upon you with displeasure, as if he needed anything from you. You glorifying God doesn't add any weight to his glory. And you not obeying the law doesn't take away from his glory. He does not need you. But in his love and mercy and kindness, out of his blessedness, he blesses you with his son. And he gives you his blessed law, brothers and sisters. And unless we see God that way, we will never see, if we don't see him as blessed, we will not see the blessedness of his law. So that we sing of its glory and adore it like David did, writing these entire psalms, love songs about the love of the law of God. We won't love it that way unless we see God as blessed in and of himself. And so I think oftentimes we have a wrong view of God's law because we have a wrong view of him. Wasn't that the first lie that our parents believed? Is God really up to your good? I don't know. I think he's keeping that fruit from you because he doesn't want you to participate in those good things. That's Satan's first lie that we bought into. He's not the blessed God. That's the lie. He is brothers and sisters. And we are blessed in Christ. And it is our great privilege to submit ourselves to his law out of love and gratitude and thankfulness for the love that he has shown us. We're not under the law as a covenant of works. It's our great privilege, though, to be conformed more 
to his image as he teaches us from his law and convicts us from his law. And so may we thank him for it and may he use it to change us from one degree of glory to the next. May it be. Amen.